Professor Chris Bass, aphids, known all over the country um, as one of our most prominent pests, but no one really knows that much more about them other than they're small and green. Could you tell us what makes them such good pests? Yeah, so aphids um, typically do their thing out of sight, so that's why perhaps um, the general public are not so aware, although most keen gardeners will know of green flies because um, uh, some species attack their roses, for example, and that's how I knew about them before I became a scientist. Um, so yeah, so aphids are a group um, of, of many thousands of different species, but a relatively small number of those are important pests. Um, and one of the ones that we work on um, on campus is the green peach aphid, Mysis persici. Um, and in this particular um, case, there's a number of reasons why it's an important pest. Uh, firstly, it feeds on a, on a large number of different plants, including many plants which we grow as crops. So more than 400 different plant species from 40 different wow. plant families. So that's when, when insects do that, they're called polyphagus. And so they have this broad diet. Uh, and that means it can attack things like oilseed rape, um, sugar beets and leafy salads, all important crops. The other reason it's an important pest is um, it can cause damage to the plant through sucking up the sap, so weaken the plant. Um, but often what's more important is its ability to vector plant viruses. So just like you and I are just recovering from colds right now, um, so plants can catch uh, viruses that can make them very sick and reduce the yield. Um, and typically those viruses are vectored, so transmitted by insects. And aphids are really important uh, vectors of virus. And this green peach aphid can transmit more than 100 different plant viruses. Um, and, then, and then the final reason they're really important pests is um, how good they are at reproducing. Um, so during the growing, growing season, um, aphids typically will reproduce asexually. And that means they can reproduce really fast. So a single female can give birth to um, daughters uh, and she can give birth to five daughters a day and more than 100 daughters over her lifespan. And so you can very quickly go from a single aphid to hundreds of aphids. And in fact, it's been calculated that if, you, if there was no predation and there was unlimited food, in just a single season, um, we'd have uh, uh, aphids 90 miles deep over the surface of the earth. Wow, that's, that's, that's amazing. That's a sort of tidal wave of aphids we'd have over the earth. Right, so they're just, they've just got this remarkable ability to, to reproduce super rapidly. And, and that's in part what makes them important pests. I've heard that they can also do what's called telescope generations. Mm -hmm. Could you just explain that a bit? Yeah, so that's, um, that's something that they're well known for. So the best analogy here is Russian dolls. So um, inside the mother aphid, she has embryos developing at various stages, and they look like a chain of sausages if you look at them in the microscope, with bigger embryos um, closer to the, to the birth canal and then smaller ones as you go back. Well, what's re truly remarkable, and this comes back to the Russian doll analogy, is that inside mum, you'll have both her daughter, and then inside that daughter, you'll have her daughter. So effectively, the mother has her daughter and granddaughter inside her. So that's how you can get this amazing um, output of, of babies. Wow, so unborn baby aphids are born with unborn baby aphids that's, inside of them. That's right, yeah. That's incredible. Now, I wanted to talk to you about um, some symbiotic relationships that mm -hmm. aphids are very well known for having with other animals, mm -hmm. one of them being ants. And I was reading this paper on ant farming, and it sounds like these ants are just absolute tyrants. What they do is they, 
They, they arrive on a plant where there are aphids, they bite off their wings. There, there are enzymes in their saliva which actually prevents the aphids' wings from regrowing. And then the ants can just keep the aphids for their honeydew and occasionally snack on them. Why do these relationships develop? What's the, um, yes. what's the benefit? Yeah, sure. So that's one of the most, I guess, iconic examples of a, a symbiosis or symbiotic relationship between two insects. Um, so as you said, it looks really like the, the ants are, are kind of the dominant partner in this relationship. And in a sense, they are. They're farming the ants like we would farm livestock. Um, and you mentioned honeydew, so the aphids feed on uh, the phloem, the sap of the plant, and that's basically a sugary liquid. So what comes, it goes in, must come out, and, and what comes out still has a very high sugar content. So the ants will um, stroke the bottoms of the aphids with their antennae and induce them to produce a droplet of honeydew, which they then eat. Um, but the aphids in turn get something out of this relationship um, because they're protected from predators and parasitoids that might um, attack and, and feed on them or parasitize them. Um, so uh, they do gain benefits, you know, and, and they're able to pass on their genes um, where perhaps they wouldn't be able to without the ants protecting them. Wow, so it's almost like we've got these, these ants addicted to this high sugar, high sugar drink like us on Red Bull or Coke and they've just got to keep going, keep intaking this liquid all the time and that's why they farm them and keep them. And in terms of fighting off predators, I heard that aphids kickbox their predators from behind. Is this true? Um, yeah, so there there are different species and they differ in their ability to protect themselves. There are certain species called soldier aphids, which are like the tanks of the aphid world. Um, but the, the species we work on is pretty defenceless. Um, it, it's pretty feeble, to be honest, and, and wouldn't really be able to deter a predator by kicking. But what they have evolved is the ability to warn their siblings because they're um, clonally identical um, when, they're, when they're given birth from a, a, a single mum. It doesn't really matter if they die um, or, their, their, you know, or their brothers or sisters survive. As long as one of them survives, their genes are passed on. Uh, and so they've evolved this system where they can warn their siblings by releasing a chemical from these stalks that stick out of their bottom called cornicles. Uh, and that chemical called E-betaphanazine um, is, a, is a volatile that rapidly diffuses into the atmosphere. And as soon as uh, the siblings or other aphids detect it, they, they just unplug their stylets and scarper and they'll, they'll run or jump off the leaf. Uh, to hopefully avoid being predated themselves. So they've got this alarm system that's um, evolved, which is really quite amazing. Gosh, that's incredible. And is that specific to each species or is it aphids in general can pick up um, each other's pheromones? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure I know the extent to which, um, you know, it's species specific. I think maybe that it's a kind of a generic mechanism, but maybe... Uh, you know, the exact composition might change between different aphid species, the amount produced. So that would be something we should um, we should do some definitely, research on. Definitely, definitely. And I guess the ants must have some sort of mechanism as well to turn that off. Because if they sometimes go and eat the aphids, then they don't want them all to sort of scarper. Right. Um, but yeah. I, I was also reading that the ants not only do that, but... They also have in their chemical footprint, um, there's an enzyme which actually almost tranquilizes and drugs the aphids. So they did an experiment where there were aphids walking across some paper or plain, just plain paper, and they measured that speed, however you measure an aphid walking. And then they put the aphids on some paper that had the same chemical footprint as an ant, and they measured that the aphids walked far slower. 
which right. is really interesting. So clearly there's a lot of chemical warfare going on. Right, yeah, so chemical manipulation. And then maybe that's why in turn the aphids are not releasing their alarm pheromone because they can detect the semiochemicals released by the ants and so they don't perceive it as a threat. Definitely. I think that's I think that's fascinating. But you also, you worked on a paper to do with aphids switching their hosts from a, a variety of plants to specifically the tobacco plants. Could you speak about that a bit? Yeah, sure. So... Um, Although Mises persky, this green peach aphid, is very polyphagous, there are some plants that um, typically it would struggle to feed on. And these are plants that produce very potent chemical defences. Um, and one of those, a really good example, is tobacco. So tobacco is grown actually for nicotine, you know, for, for smoking. Um, but that, what many people don't know is that it's a potent natural insecticide that actually has been used for a long time by humans. Uh, and most insects you know, that would essentially lead to paralysis if, if they ate it. It affects their nervous system. But Mises persicae, the green peach aphid, has evolved a mechanism to, to tolerate that toxin. It's essentially become resistant to it. And that means it can feed on tobacco. That's incredible. So why would it do this? What's the, what's the benefit of moving to a toxic plant? Good question. Yeah, so I mean, to start as it's, it's got a new food resource that was previously unavailable, um, but the other thing that, that that might happen in that scenario is it can move into something called enemy-free space so that, um, you know, there might it's normal um, predators and parasites uh, might not be as prevalent on that host plant. And so it can move away, you know, from its, its natural form of control. So that's possibly one reason. That's incredible. And how, how does it detoxify this nicotine? How does it deal with it? Right. So we need to then kind of look inside the aphid and try and understand the, the biochemical and genomic changes that have occurred. So we did a study to, to look at this and we found that they dramatically increased the production of an enzyme and that enzyme breaks down nicotine into its non-toxic form, which is called cotinine, just like you or I do. So we have, the, we have not the same enzyme, but a very similar enzyme in our livers that breaks down nicotine in the blood to cotinine. So clearly there's actually more resemblance between aphids and us that a lot of people realise. Right, exactly. And um, so the aphids have done this. How, how they've overproduced this enzyme is the gene that encodes the enzyme has become amplified. So that means normally you might have two copies if you're a diploid organism. Um, now they have, you know, 10 or more copies of the gene. Um, and so that means they produce a lot more of the enzyme and they can break it down more rapidly. And we see this, a similar thing in humans. So some humans have more copies of the nicotine metabolizing gene than others. Uh, and that can have, you know, other implications beyond just nicotine. It, it means they can uh, metabolize nicotine very rapidly and they may alter how they smoke as a result. So they draw more heavily on a cigarette because they can't um, get the same hit if you like, from nicotine than other people because it's metabolized so rapidly. Because it's all being broken down. So, right. wow, okay. But there's also cases where that could impact um, a human's response to a therapeutic drug. Um, so that could be beneficial or it could be harmful. So if a drug that's supposed to be beneficial for someone, you know, a cancer drug, for example, is broken down, then it might not be able to have its benefit, you know, in killing cancer cells. So the, the profile of enzymes in our bodies can alter how we respond to drugs at the level of the individual. So actually studying these aphids and their enzymes, which I assume is possibly easier than studying something in a complex mammal such as ourselves? Yeah, I think there's advantages and disadvantages, you know, um, but 
but certainly you've got more of them yeah. <laughs> to study. A lot more of them. And so this has actually got implications for researching into nicotine and drug addictions, really, and how we react to a lot of medicines. Yeah, so there's some parallels there. So we can we can look and you know see how things are, are similar and how they're different across the order of life. So that's really interesting. That's absolutely fascinating. Now, insecticide resistance is also something I wanted to speak to you about because very hot topics, very much in the news. Everyone's mm-hmm. becoming more and more aware of just how many insecticides and herbicides are being used in crop production. Mm-hmm. And you worked on a paper called Transposon-Mediated Insertional Mutagenesis. Could you just take us through that? Because you'll be much better at breaking that down than I am. Yeah, sure. So it's a real mouthful, isn't it? <laughs> um, Yes, yeah, so insecticide resistance is a, is a growing issue. Um, so just as um, you know, bacteria are evolving resistance to antibiotics, and we're all aware of the antibiotic resistance apocalypse and the implications that that can have. So other organisms can evolve resistance if if they subject to selection pressure, and insecticides represent a very powerful selective force and can quite easily lead to resistance. So in our research, we try and understand how the insects do that. And then hopefully, if we can understand it, try and come up with ways to to slow or prevent or delay the the evolution of resistance. So in this particular case, we found that um, something called a transposable element was involved in the evolution of resistance. So transposable elements are pieces of selfish DNA, essentially, that are present in the genomes of most organisms. So our, our genome, human genomes, are riddled with transposons, and they can, you know, copy themselves and move around and paste themselves, essentially, uh, or, or it can be a cut-and-paste mechanism. Essentially, you can get quite large pieces of DNA, um, you know, moving around the genome, and that can play havoc, right? If, if, you're, if, a, if a transposable element lands in a gene, it can disrupt the function of that gene and it can no longer produce its protein. So in general, it's believed that transposable elements are harmful. They, their insertions result in fitness penalties, or, or either neutral or detrimental, but sometimes they can be beneficial, they can be adaptive. Uh, and in, this is an example of, of that. Um, so we showed that a transposable element inserted into an essential gene that encodes a protein that's really important in making making the insect's nervous system work. So normally that would be quite harmful because, um, you know, it's disrupted a gene that's essential. In this particular case, the transposable element just inserted into one of the two copies. So that meant that the insertion wasn't lethal because you still had one copy that could produce a functional protein. But it did result in a fitness cost. Aphids that had the insertion reproduced at much lower rates at higher temperatures than um, aphids without the transposon. But where it gets complicated, but I think quite interesting, is when insecticides come into the equation. Because insecticides act on this receptor that I've mentioned in the nervous system. So many insecticides are nerve poisons, essentially, because they can act really fast and and kill the insect. And so the transposon took out a copy of this gene that the insecticide targets. And the copy that it it took out had no resistance-associated mutations in it. So essentially it silenced the, the insecticide sensitivity copy of the gene. This is where it gets quite complicated and, you know, your listeners might want to have a, a quick read of the abstract to, to get the, the gist of it in a bit more detail. 
But the take home really is that in the presence of insecticides, what was normally a detrimental mutation, this transposable element insertion, actually became beneficial and allowed the aphids to become resistant to insecticides. So it shows how environmental change can alter what's the, the genetic makeup in terms of what's, what's beneficial and what's harmful. That's incredible. So basically what we have is if we imagine a gene like a set of dominoes, if we insert a single domino at a, at a point and the, every, every domino downstream from that will fall down and it disrupts the gene, mm -hmm. this is what's given the aphids an advantage in a particular environment. Right. And that environment is us using insecticides. So we have put that selection pressure by using insecticides onto the aphids and now they've been able to become resistant to them. Right, that's it. And in this particular case, what, what's really interesting from my perspective is that this is something that's harmful normally. You know, so we think of genetic variation as just being this neutral um, stuff that floats around in our genome, but actually sometimes it's, it's really bad. But you, you change the environment or you change the selection pressure and it can be good. So it's all, it's all about context. Wow, so we've effectively flipped what would normally be a harmful mutation taken that evolution and made it beneficial. Right, yeah. That's incredible. So how, how common is this? Does this happen a lot? Um, so we, yeah, I think we're still trying to understand a lot more about the role of transposable elements in particular and how frequently they are adaptive. And we've got researchers on campus like Alex Haywood, and this is the whole focus of his research group. And they look across you know, all sorts of different organisms and try and understand, you know, what's the role of transposable element in creating genetic variation in the genome, but also in terms of, you know, providing some of these fitness benefits. So we still need to do more work, I think, really to understand that better. Do you think that we are too reliant on insecticides? Yes, so we have... Um, That's very, very decisive, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah, so I think that it's a really straight yes there because we have relied very heavily on insecticides for decades now. Um, the first synthetic insecticide introduced was um, DDT in the 1940s, and that became notorious because it, it became clear it had um, negative environmental impacts. Since then, a range of insecticides have been introduced, and many are very specific for the pest insects um, and, and have very minimal off-target effects. But if we continue to rely on one particular technology for control, it's very easy for resistance to evolve. Um, and so to try and prevent resistance, we need to kind of think it, about it from an evolutionary perspective. So how can we avoid, you know, one single strong selective force? Can we use a variety of different methods for control, which will each will have its own selection force, but those will be independent. And for example, if we rotate those, can we essentially cheat evolution or, or avoid natural selection and, and the emergence of resistance. Definitely. And you, you mentioned DDT. Your paper was on bifenthrin, is that right? That's right, yeah. Has that had any known consequences for humans and or other organisms in the food chain? Yeah, so pyrethroids are, have been around for a long time. And so bifenthrin is a, a pyrethroid insecticide and they are designed off, off the, based on a natural product. So chrysanthemum flowers uh, produce something called pyrethrin, which is this natural insecticide. And pyrethroids are essentially a tweaked version, so they've been made more UV-stable. Um, so they're very safe for humans and, and vertebrates, but 
Uh, they can kill insects, they're insecticides, and they're what's known as a broad-spectrum insecticide, and that means they can kill across different species. And so that means they can have off-target effects by killing beneficial um, insect species. So clearly, you know, that's an issue, and how, how you use those insecticides need to be carefully considered. And really what we want to get to is, you know, using a variety of different methods and then using insecticides kind of as a last resort, you know, as just one component in a bigger control strategy. Definitely. I think I read that the World Health Organization describes bifenthrin as moderately hazardous. So it won't it won't kill you, but um, not, not something you want in, in your cup of coffee. They said that the carcinogenic effects for humans are unlikely, but we can't rule them out. So I think it, this is why it's so important we keep researching. Um, well, another reason it's so important we keep researching these insecticides. And as a, as a researcher in this field, um, you know, a leading researcher, what would you like to see happen in, I don't know, the policymaking or whoever makes the decisions about insecticides? What do you think really needs to happen? Um, yeah, so I think we need to do a lot of active research to, to understand what makes insecticides specific for the pest um, and what we can do to make sure that they you know are, are really specific and don't harm other insect species so we do some research on that topic in terms of bees to understand the interaction between bees and pesticides and and what's what's key to make to ensuring that the bee is is not harmed you know in that case or or the insecticides are not toxic to them. So we need, yeah, research on that topic, um, but also further emphasis on the need to adopt what's what are known as integrated pest management strategies, where perhaps the um, you know other control methods like biological control form the mainstay of the control, and then insecticides are just one component of of that control. Professor Chris Bass, thank you so much for speaking to me. That was absolutely fascinating. My pleasure. So a huge thank you to Professor Chris Bass for giving his time for this interview. With world food security becoming an ever more pressing issue, this was a timely and important conversation. If you're enjoying hearing about the world's hidden ecologies, consider giving this podcast a rating or sharing it on social media. You can find me on Instagram at hidden underscore ecologies. I'm always keen to hear feedback and suggestions for future episodes. Join me next time as I speak with Professor Yanis Papastamitiu about his work researching ocean predators, deep water coral reefs, and the amazing adventures his work has taken him on. This is Hidden Ecologies.